I think we have to hope and pray uh, for the sake of the country and the world that the CDC gets back to its position as an independent scientific agency. We're a stronger, safer, healthier country if the CDC is, is doing its job well. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Is there a connection between record-shattering heat waves and wildfires, a global pandemic, and rising food insecurity? That's the focus of a new book, Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves, co-edited by Dr. Howard Frumkin. Frumkin is a professor emeritus of environmental and occupational health science and former dean of the University of Washington School of Public Health. He was director of the National Center for Environmental Health at the CDC under President Obama. Uh, Dr. Howard Frumkin, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you very much, Dave. It's nice to be here. This week, we mark the grim and really astonishing milestone of 200,000 people dead from the coronavirus pandemic. Can you connect the dots between human health, planetary health, and our politics to explain how did the United States become the deadliest place on earth in this pandemic? Boy, now that's a big question. So let's begin by thinking about how pandemics occur in the context of the planet. This concept of planetary health about which uh, Sam Myers and I have written holds that you can't really have healthy people without a healthy planet. And we're disrupting planetary systems enough that these disruptions are accounting for a bigger and bigger share of human suffering. So infectious diseases are just one example, but a very important one, especially these days. If you disrupt ecosystems, if you bring people into more and more contact with uh, wild creatures and wild settings than has been typical, and if you then move uh, germs globally faster than we've ever done before, that's a perfect setup for what are called um, uh, zoonotic diseases the, the uh, crossover of diseases from the animal kingdom to humans. So that's where this pandemic began. I think there was a second part to your question, which was, how did it get so out of control? Right. And that's, that's much more a human institutional story than a, a biological story. That's a story of uh, failure to be prepared, uh, of needlessly politicizing something that shouldn't have been politicized, and, uh, and all the rest of the, the, the poor response that we know so well. You write in your book, Planetary Health, that the emergence of COVID-19 represents a rupture of the human relationship with the natural world. Um, and you were sort of hinting at that in your last answer, but, but say a little bit more about that. Well, listen, we don't want to be romantic about the past, the good old days and all of that, but it, it is the case that if we exploit the planet, if we extract resources at a huge scale, if we burn fossil fuels at a huge scale, knowing that we're changing the environment as we do so, if we throw our waste into the environment, those are not good for the planet. And as the planet degrades, and make no mistake, we're degrading planetary systems from the ocean pH to the cycles of phosphorus and nitrogen to the chemistry of the atmosphere. As we do those things, the relatively stable conditions that we've enjoyed for the last 10,000 years or more change. That's bad for the planet. And importantly, it's bad for us. Hmm. Um, 
you know, we're, we're also seeing as we speak uh, these climate change fueled heat waves and wildfires raging in the Western U.S., these record-breaking floods and hurricanes that are battering the Gulf Coast. And you live in Seattle and you've just emerged literally from beneath a thick cloud of smoke that has been enveloping uh, Seattle and Portland. Um, let me just ask, first of all, on a personal level, what what was it like at its worst, which is only about a week ago, I guess? I mean, we heard that Portland registered as having the worst air quality on the entire planet for a few days. Yeah, it it was grim in two ways, Dave. It was grim because when you wake up and you look outside and the entire sky is a sickly shade of yellow-gray, and when you can smell smoke... It's, it's a terrible feeling. You feel bad. It's also grim because if you think about what it means and where it comes from, these were record-breaking fires up and down the West Coast, and that's just one symptom of, of uh, if you will, the planet letting us know that all is not well. And so in the context of, of all of the climate change trends, it's, it's certainly the, the storms on the Gulf, the fires on the West Coast, but the loss of glacial ice, the outbreaks of locusts in Africa. I mean, things are, are very grim all over the planet and experiencing it personally up close uh, was, was even more grim than usual. So, and just in terms of day-to-day -day life, I'm guessing people couldn't go running or biking. You couldn't do any sort of aerobic activity in those conditions, right? Not only not doing any aerobic activity, but we all stayed inside. And, you know, indoor air quality is very heavily influenced by outdoor air quality. So you couldn't escape it altogether. But if you stayed inside and you ran an air purifier, it was a little more bearable than being outside. Certainly no running or biking or all the things we love to do in the Northwest while the smoke was in the air. So, I mean, it raises the obvious question of, uh, you know, you speak about the health impacts of climate change. People probably look at you like, you know, what are you talking about? It's so abstract. Well, this is pretty, pretty tangible. What are going to be or what are the health impacts um, that you're seeing just from the current environmental disasters that were going on? Well, uh, climate change in general has a whole raft of health impacts. And Unhappily, many of them are being demonstrated for us now. So one is severe weather events, which is kind of a, a jargony term for hurricanes, tornadoes, storms, but also droughts uh, and heat waves. When those things happen, people get hurt in the short term and they have long lasting impacts as well, especially mental health impacts. If, if your life is upended, if you lose your home, if you're displaced, air quality uh, diminishes with climate change. And part of that is that ozone forms more in warm weather than in cool weather. So the hotter things get, the more ozone forms, especially in cities. But the other big impact on air quality is the one that we just lived through this week, and that is smoke from wildfires. Allergens get worse. We're not seeing that right now. That's usually an early to midsummer phenomenon here in the Northern Hemisphere. But uh, unhappily, lots of the plants that produce allergens thrive under climate change. And so they produce more and more allergenic allergens. Mm. And you got the infectious disease story. Uh, COVID-19 isn't exactly an example of climate change driving infectious diseases, but there are plenty of examples. Uh, 
listeners in Vermont will be familiar with Lyme disease, which is spreading across the Northern Hemisphere, both in North America and Europe, uh, in part because of climate change-induced changes in habitat for the ticks that cause it. We're seeing dengue fever in the Southern US now, which we haven't seen before. Malaria is spreading its range. Uh, in hot weather, it's harder to keep water and food uh, sanitary, which means that we see rises in diarrheal diseases from contaminated food and water every summer. And those increases are getting longer and higher with climate change. So the whole infectious disease story is a very important one. The ones that keep me awake at night are none of the above. The ones that keep me awake at night are food and dislocation. Food is important because as climate change reduces agricultural outputs around the world, especially in vulnerable places, uh, people can't eat. And when people can't eat, what they do is move to where they think they can eat. That means a lot of dislocation from rural areas to urban areas and from poor parts of the world to more wealthy parts of the world. So a lot of the refugee crises that we've seen around the world are traceable in part to climate change. And I just think we haven't even seen the beginning of it. We've seen uh, people in the millions looking to migrate both from the Middle East and North Africa to Europe and from Latin America to the US. And that's been enough to upend politics in both places. But if we see much more migration in coming years, that will be much more disruptive. And those things are bad for health as well. Now, climate change and the health impacts, it does not affect people equally. So explain the difference why some people or populations are more vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Talk about the disparity of impacts. Well, the disparity story runs through almost every climate change impact. So let's, if you start with severe weather events, the parts of cities that are most vulnerable to climate change uh, driven storms tend to be the parts of cities where poor people live. So think of the low-lying parts of New Orleans when Katrina hit. Think of the slopes above the cities of, uh, of um, Rio de Janeiro uh, in Brazil, where there's unstable land. And when severe storms come in, that's where you get the mudslides. Uh, and think of also the lack of access to resilience, like the ability to fortify your house, like access to health services, uh, which are worse for poor people than for well-off people. So the poor, the disenfranchised uh, across a whole range of hazards are more at risk. The elderly are more at risk of several things, the smoke from wildfires, the ozone from worsened air pollution, especially hit those who are elderly, as well as the very young. Children are at risk again, from bad air, from infectious diseases, because their immune systems aren't so mature. So I think that the risk groups that I would think about the most are the, those who are poor and disenfranchised, poor communities, communities of color, as well as the very old and the very young. And then finally, people with underlying medical conditions. So if you have asthma and the air quality worsens, then you're going to be especially vulnerable. So it's uh, climate change is a, an interesting and perplexing challenge because none of us is immune. All of us are affected, but some of us are more affected than others. You know, some of the most interesting um, studies that I'm seeing lately look at uh, how socioeconomic ish, uh, indicators and 
um, why communities of color are especially vulnerable to not just COVID-19, but many of the climate-related problems, and that, in fact, um, inner-city neighborhoods are hotter, dramatically hotter, than surrounding areas. Explain why that is. What has intensified the effects of climate on communities of color who are, you know, we know are dying at two and three and four times the rates during the current pandemic? Well, some of it is, is biological and social. And what I mean by that is that if you live a life uh, afflicted by racism, there's a chronic stress that is a part of life. And resistance to a lot of diseases is lower. Uh, and that, that probably is part of the problem for, uh, in terms of COVID and a lot of other diseases as well. There's just a baseline of life being tough to live if you're the victim of discrimination. Then you've got uh, other biological risk factors so that in, in poor communities, people have less availability of fresh food, more reliance on processed food, uh, unhealthier diets, and that sets the stage for more obesity, more hypertension, more risk factors for diseases such as COVID. You mentioned hot parts of cities. So that's an interesting story. There's a phenomenon called the urban heat island uh, under which cities are hotter than the surrounding countryside. The urban heat island arises for several reasons. One is that you lose vegetation in cities. Vegetation ordinarily cools a place down through a phenomenon called evapotranspiration. Secondly, you generate heat in cities through the things we do in cities like uh, using energy, running vehicles, and so on. Uh, and third, you have dark surfaces in cities that absorb heat and re-radiate that heat during the evening when a place would otherwise cool down. Well, if you look across the expanse of a city, the parts of the city where you tend to have the least vegetation and the most dark surfaces tend to be the poorer parts of the city. Think of New York City where Central Park is a, a lush island of green in the middle of the city and cools Manhattan down and then go north to Harlem where you've got uh, many fewer parks, much less tree canopy, and as a result, hotter parts of the city. So those hot parts of the city can be 10 to 15 degrees hotter than the cooler parts of the city, which can in turn be around five degrees hotter than surrounding countryside. And finally, what we see in heat waves is that if you're in a poor part of the city, you're worried about opening your windows because of security concerns. You don't have air conditioning. You may be in a top floor of a building and all of that conspires to make your apartment uh, essentially an oven, which gets very, very hot and you may not have any relief at all. And so that's why we see fatalities to, so high among poor people compared to rich people uh, during heat waves. Hmm. If you're just joining us, uh, my guest is Howard Frumpkin. He's a professor emeritus of environmental and occupational health and science and a former dean at the University of Washington School of Public Health. He's co-editor of a new book, Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. Um, Dr. Frumkin, you were head of the uh, National Center for Environmental Health at the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. And you tried to expand the CDC's climate efforts. You launched climate and health programs in 10 state health departments with a plan or hope to expand to all 50 states. But the CDC never expanded the program and ultimately defunded it. And it did not take a very active role in climate and health issues. What happened? 
Well, I think climate and health as a public health concern has been an orphan issue at the CDC for a long time. Uh, when I was working there under the Bush administration and then the Obama administration, other concerns tended to eclipse it. Uh, the CDC has a tradition of focusing on infectious diseases and only recently has come to uh, non-communicable diseases or chronic diseases. But the, the big scale environmental challenges like climate change have never really been baked into the culture there. That was particularly a concern under Republican administrations, which disapproved of uh, even thinking about climate change as an issue. And senior leadership at the CDC has not been supportive of tackling climate change for, for quite some time. On top of all that, Congress has to appropriate funds for the CDC. And it's been very hard to get congressional appropriations in, in particular for working on climate and health. So it becomes an orphan issue. It's, a, it's the finest public health agency anywhere. And uh, in my view, isn't doing nearly enough to tackle the climate challenge. What should it do? What could it do? Well, remember that public health in our country is based at the local and state level. CDC really has a supportive role, uh, issues guidance, issues information, but the real action is at the local and state level. CDC can do a lot more of what it's been doing on a small scale, and that is train and empower and fund and staff local health departments to do what needs to be done. And what that is, is assess the likely threats to health within their jurisdictions. So at the level of, say, the Vermont Health Department, do some modeling and forecasting. This is what climate scientists do all the time. But then translate that into the health domain. So what will it mean for the health of the people in Vermont? Will there be heat waves? Will there be infectious diseases? Will there be floods? Will there be mental health consequences? And once those are forecast, then gear up to tackle them. So that may mean uh, heat wave preparedness planning. That may mean uh, beefing up the diagnostic capabilities in laboratories for infectious diseases that we know are coming. That may mean training physicians and nurses to handle cases of hyperthermia. So what you do depends on what you think is coming. You have to do the forecasting and planning. Then you do the preparedness, and that's how you can protect the population. Hmm. Uh, this week, the CDC issued scientific guidance about the airborne transmission of coronavirus only to rescind and change it to better align with President Trump's wishes. And uh, we've now seen several instances of the CDC being used essentially, you know, as a conduit for political views. Um, has there been this kind of political interference in the CDC before? And should we stop listening to Trump's CDC? Well, the CDC is a science-based agency, and it's always been fairly independent. The science has been sacrosanct. Uh, living in Atlanta and not in Washington helps a lot. I don't think any of us has ever seen the level of political interference and manipulation of the CDC that we're seeing these days. I think we have to hope and pray uh, for the sake of the country and the world that the CDC gets back to its position as an independent scientific agency uh, so that we can trust all the advice coming from there. We're a stronger, safer, healthier country if the CDC is, is doing its job well. Um, should we stop listening to it while President Trump is running it? <laughs> That's a hard question. 
it's uh, it, I would have said three years ago we can really trust what's coming out of the CDC. I'm not sure who to listen to now. I, I, it, 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 it's perplexing to me and I think to lots of other Americans when, when we know that there's meddling in what the CDC says. That said, if you go to the CDC website on COVID-19, it's full of good advice. I, I think most of it is just fine. So this latest episode is uh, more severe than what we've seen, but I think it's, it's the exception, not the rule. I would say that most of what's on the CDC website is very, very solid and, and dependable. If we can't believe the CDC for guidance on coronavirus, uh, or let's say if we can't 100% believe it, who can we believe? The World Health Organization is issuing very, very good information as well. And I think we just have to uh, read the sources coming out of top scientists. Dr. Fauci is, is a very reliable source. Uh, a number of scientists are actively writing and blogging now. And uh, I think... Uh, the fact that it's so hard to answer the question in a clear, direct way is a reflection of how difficult it is for us as a country when the CDC is being interfered with and, and we can't go to that usually trustworthy source. How do you talk to climate deniers? <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitating because that's a tough question too, Dave. I There are some people who have politicized the climate question so much that I think it's, uh, it's impossible to reason with them. And I don't try. Uh, if people really care about the science and really want their opinions to be guided by evidence, I think we can work through the evidence together. And so looking at the trends of hot weather, of severe storms, of the spread of infectious disease, all of this paints a quite clear picture. I try to point out uh, something that's important for people to understand, which is that the scientific consensus on climate change is very, very strong. And many people have heard this, but more than 99% of scientists who work in this area are in complete agreement about the fact that it's happening, about the direction of change. There is disagreement about the, uh, the rapidity of change about precisely how it's going to play out in every individual place. But in general, the scientific consensus about what's happening is very strong. And for people to be reminded of that is important as well. You conclude your book by writing uh, about the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, you write, quote, let us turn this moment of darkness and pain into an opportunity for renaissance and regeneration. How do you do that? What would that look like? I think one of the guiding realities is that the things we have to do to tackle planetary changes are not a story of deprivation and sacrifice. It's a story of opportunity, of making better lives. If we shift from uh, single occupancy, uh, internal combustion engine driven vehicles to walking and cycling and transit, we're healthier. We're probably happier. Uh, everybody's heard of road rage. Sidewalk rage isn't that common a thing. Uh, if we shift from meat-intensive diets, which have a very high carbon and water and land footprint, to more plant-based diets, we're healthier. If we shift from burning fossil fuels to solar, wind, and other renewables, then the air gets cleaner and we're healthier. So a lot of the shifts we have to make 
to reorient our relationship with the natural world and sustain it in a healthy way are changes that are healthy for us to make as well. At this moment, with COVID raging and with governments all over the world pouring huge amounts of money into a recovery, and with lots of things in flux, it's an opportunity to get things right. So for example, what if we took a page from history, go back to the depression when Roosevelt created the WPA and the CCC as jobs programs in the face of massive unemployment, what if we did the same thing now with something like a National Recovery Corps and used that labor to provide the infrastructure that the country needs to transform to a more sustainable way of living? Uh, when Roosevelt set up the CCC and the WPA, they built airports and parks and other infrastructure. Something like that now, using the funds that we're putting into the recovery, could provide us with a smart electric grid, with electric vehicle charging stations, with insulation of homes and commercial buildings all over the country, with many of the things that we need to turn uh, our future into a brighter future. Okay, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Howard Frumkin, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you very much, Dave. Nice to be with you. Howard Frumkin is a former dean of the University of Washington School of Public Health, and he was director of the National Center for Environmental Health at the CDC under President Obama. He is co-editor of a new book, Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.